Today's scripture reading comes from 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 12. Hear the word of the Lord. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So, have you ever had a bad day? Uh, be honest, um, ever, maybe this past week, uh, maybe you're having one today, even now. I think we know the answer is obvious. The truth is we all have them from time to time. We each know that sick, sinking feeling that comes when nothing goes according to plan. Um, it's kind of like that old bumper sticker almost said, stuff happens. Uh, it does, give it time. It always does. It will find you, and you find yourself in a tough circumstance, in a tight bind, in an overwhelming situation. Whatever it is, it hits the fan. And you need to know this, church. Um, I did some research this week, and it turns out that bad days aren't just a modern invention. Um, it seems that for about 2,000 years, even or more, people have been having them. And in fact, this morning, we're going to spend some time studying words written by a man who found himself in a season of bad days. Uh, life had really beaten him up. Work was tough, and relationships were strained. Indeed, so much of what Paul, the author of this morning's text, had worked so hard to build seemed to be crumbling apart around him. You see, Paul was a church planner. And the community of Jesus followers that he had gathered together in Corinth, they'd started to being led astray. He had done some good work there getting everything established, but as soon as he left to go and plant more churches, this other group of guys came in. And they told the folks, hey, we know you love Paul. We know how much he means to you. We know he got everything started here, but you should really follow us instead. We're, uh, we're better. We're smarter. What we have to say is more important. So these men, they questioned Paul's integrity. And they sought to undermine his authority. And when Paul found out about this, he was understandably undone. I mean, how could this have happened, he wondered. How could the people that I've literally given my life to, that I've been so committed to, how could they turn on me so quickly? And betrayed, discouraged, heartbroken, and tired. That is where Paul was. Now, have you ever been there? Never felt hurt, ever felt stuck, like even your best efforts were futile. If that's the case, you are not alone. Paul was there. He lived in that space for a while. He was nervous. He was disturbed. He was troubled about what was happening in Corinth. And in the midst of that nervousness, in the midst of that tumultuous season, in the midst of that heaviness and hurt, Paul wrote the letter that we'll be studying this morning. In the midst of this very trying season in his life, he penned the letter that we've come to call 2 Corinthians. 
And in this letter to the church that he loved, but also the church that had really done him dirty, Paul writes something absolutely astounding. And we heard it read once already this morning, but allow me to repeat it. In the midst of this trying, distressful season, Paul writes to the church in Corinth, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. In the midst of an overwhelming season of life, Paul writes these words of remarkable hope and buoyancy. He writes these words of resilience. Paul, who'd been betrayed, discouraged, who was heartbroken, it seems as if he almost sees the world differently. While others might look at his circumstances and identify failure and futility, Paul sees with eyes of faith. He sees everything differently. He places his experience of challenge and heartbreak in the context of some larger story that gives guidance and meaning and purpose. He understands his life differently. And friends, I think that is incredible. That ability to see with eyes of faith, it's something that just blows my mind. And it's the kind of perspective, what Paul's able to do, uh, it's what enables him to have a faith that endures, a faith that can carry him from Sunday into Monday and onward into the rest of life. So how does Paul do it? How does Paul see what we so often can't see? How does he do what we so often can't do, remember what we so often can't remember? Well, that's the heart of our inquiry this morning. You see, from the very first Sunday of this year up until now, we've been in a series called Church for Monday. Uh, we've been exploring what it means to have a kind of vibrant faith that doesn't just change what we do on Sundays, right? That doesn't just mean we, make, we wake up a little earlier than we might like and grab some coffee and smile at some folks we know a little bit, right? It doesn't just change what we do on Sundays. It also changes what we do the rest of the week. It changes Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and everything else, the rest of life, all our roles and responsibilities. And so we've talked about what it means to take up our cross, to walk in the yoke. Gabe gave us those messages. Well, this morning we're going to see that those who follow Jesus in all of life, and those who have a kind of faith that sustained them, not just on Sunday, but also on Monday, uh, they build their lives on the Bible seeing everything is God's story build their life on the Bible, seeing everything is God's story. That's what Paul did, and it's what we have the opportunity to do as well. And I think if we want to do that well, if we want to see what it looks like to build our lives on the Bible, we have so much to learn from Paul's example. So we're going to look at his words in 2 Corinthians today as a kind of instructive case study. Hey, how do I see differently with the eyes of faith, even if I find myself in a really, really tough spot? So will you look with me once more at Paul's words in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 8. Again, Paul writes, so we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. But how, Paul? How do you have this perspective? What allows you to experience opposition and affliction and challenge and yet at the same time declare that you're not crushed, that you're not abandoned, that you're not destroyed? How does that happen? Well, Paul continues. He says it's because we're always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifest in our bodies as well. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Now, I'm going to be real honest. This is tricky to understand at first, but let me try to break it down for you. I think what Paul's saying in verses 10 and 11 is this. Hey, look, I'm experiencing difficulty. 
Things aren't going according to plan. There's junk happening in my life. There's frustration at my workplace as I've been planning my churches. These relationships with folks who were so dear to me, they are strained. I thought they had my back, but I realize they don't. But Paul says, I'm able to perceive it all differently because I see my reality through the story of Jesus. Paul says, my perception is different because Jesus is my lens. Jesus is teaching, his example, his life. This is the lens through which I see reality. Now, do you know how a lens works, church? I didn't either. I had to look it up this week. But I've got two of them, right, always in front of my eyes. Here's how a lens works. A lens is a curved piece of plastic or glass that refracts light when it passes through it. So a lens works by bending light towards a focal point, and it makes the object on the other side of the lens clearer or sharper. Right, so the light's coming back into your eyes. A lens bends it and narrows it into your eye, and suddenly you're able to see the image on the other side more clearly, more accurately. It might be a magnifying lens. You can see it up closer. I mean, lenses pull light into focus and make what's on the other side more discernible or easy to understand. A lenses, they're remarkable. They don't change the reality on the other side of the lens, but they do change our ability to see it clearly. And Paul says, Jesus is my lens. The example of Jesus, the story of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, this is how I experience all of reality. And so I imagine Paul looking at the difficult circumstances he's facing, right? Opposition, betrayal, discouragement, and saying, okay, okay, well, Jesus is my lens. And I know that Jesus said that the Son of Man came not to serve, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So I know that's part of Jesus' teaching. And I know that Jesus said that he had to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised again. So Paul's like, okay, I know that from Jesus' teaching. And I know that Jesus constantly sacrificed for others, that he was opposed regularly. I've, I've heard stories of him from his closest followers. I've read his preserved teaching. I know that his death brought new life. And so I imagine Paul reflecting on all that and saying, okay, I'm facing opposition. I'm facing challenge. I feel betrayed, but that doesn't mean it's the end. Looking through the lens of Jesus, I can see how new life came on the backside of those challenging circumstances. Of course, Paul says, I'm a follower of Jesus. I should expect this kind of opposition because Jesus was always opposed. And of course, Paul says, I, I, I know that I've been betrayed, but, but Jesus was betrayed as well. Paul says, hey, this happens to me, I experienced these bad things so that I can both identify with Jesus in being opposed and persecuted, but also demonstrate through my life, right, in my body, the life that Jesus brings on the other side of these challenges. This comes my way, and I identify with Jesus in the difficulty, and I also have the ability now, being in Christ, to display the glory of resurrection life on the other side. Paul sees everything in his life through the lens of Jesus. Paul says, Jesus is my lens. He sees all of life through the lens of Jesus. But that's not Paul's only lens. I think he has another lens too, another kind of reality-refining perspective that helps him have such a vibrant, courageous, unstoppable faith. I mean, that other lens becomes clear in verses 13 and 14. There Paul writes, since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. So he's quoting something there. He says, we then can also believe and we also speak knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. 
So yet again, Paul shows that his understanding of the world has been shaped by the story of Jesus, right? He said, okay, the one who raised Jesus is going to raise us as well, so we can be strong. That's the Jesus lens. But he also says uh, that little phrase there, as it has been written, right? And this is giving a hint to the other lens that Paul uses. He, he says, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. Paul says, because of that, I can also believe in the midst of great difficulty, and I can also speak of my faith in the midst of great challenge. Because of what was written, Paul says, I can have confidence and I can have faith today. Now notice these words that Paul quotes, I believed and so I spoke. Uh, These are ancient words. And specifically, they're words that are found in Psalm 116. And Psalm 116 is a Hebrew poem written by an ancient King David. And this psalm begins uh, with this line, I love the Lord because he's heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. I think in a very real sense, it is a psalm for those who feel betrayed, discouraged, heartbroken, and tired. And that's what Paul was feeling. And in Psalm 116, Israel's King David writes, look, I believed and therefore I spoken, you know, that I am greatly afflicted. And I think that Paul, in his time of great difficulty, he remembers those words, right? Paul, who had been trained in the Jewish scriptures, Paul, who was like the A-plus student in rabbi school, Paul, uh, who had likely memorized most, if not all, of the Hebrew text, remembers this ancient psalm when he's in a tough spot. And he cites those words that he had remembered and stored away in his letter to the church of Corinth. And he says, hey, even when he was in a bind, David remembered and he believed and he spoke of his faith and of his relationship with God, even when he was in difficulty, which means, Paul thinks, I can do the same. And we can do the same. Paul saw everything through the lens of Jesus and he saw everything through the lens of scripture, through the words that had been written and preserved and passed down. I mean, simply put, this is why we say at Christ Community that followers of Jesus build their life on the Bible, seeing everything as God's story. This is one of our marks of discipleship in this new series. Followers of Jesus build their life on the Bible, seeing everything as God's story. Why? Well, it's because the Bible tells the story of Jesus. And the Bible is made up of sacred, spirit-inspired texts that have been compiled and preserved for centuries. It documents God's interaction with humanity. It is the definitive text from God himself that tells us who God is and what God is like. It's how we come to know what human flourishing is. It's a story that makes sense of all our reality. It gives us direction and guidance in days, both good and bad. It is the lens by which we are invited to see the world truly, accurately, as it really is with great hope and resilience. It literally is God's life-giving word to us. But what's true, church, is that I don't always make the Bible my primary lens by which I view reality. And if you're anything like me, I imagine that you don't either. I mean, too often there are other stories that we know better than the Bible, other stories that have captured our hearts and our minds and our imaginations more than the Bible's story. Um, I'd love to share one example from my life. I grew up uh, in a pretty comfortable family. We had the resources to go out to eat a lot. So Golden China and Fort Wayne, Indiana is probably where I was raised. Uh, We also, I always had new clothes. We went on vacation in Nashville, Tennessee for many years. We were there multiple times. And so it's very easy for me to believe a story that goes something like this. Uh, If I only had more blank, then everything would be better. If I only had more, you know, I don't know, experiences, more clothes, more something like this, like I'm convinced that Cole Hahn 
or J. Crew or Nike or John Varvatos know exactly what will make me happy. And all I need is something newer or nicer or better from them. I can quote commercials like they're sacred texts. It feels like restaurants are holy sites. Right? And in this story that I've known since I was little, in this story that's been reinforced through commercials and internet ads, uh, I can often think that a little shopping spree here and a little treat yourself there will make my life better, will fill whatever is missing in me. The, the lens by which I view the world or can view the world in this way, it, it, we could call it the materialism lens, and it's a common lens. It says, an item that's new, an item that's fresher, that's going to fill what I'm feeling on the inside. That's one lens, um, but there are other lenses out there as well. There's the success lens. It's a lens that say, once I achieve this, I'll feel good about myself and everyone else will feel good about me. It's the success lens, very common lens. Um, there's what we might call the freedom lens. It's a lens that says, hey, life is best lived when you have no obligations. So once everyone leaves me alone, then I'm finally going to be happy and free and content. If people would just get out of my way, right, and I had true freedom doing whatever I want, man, then I would finally feel free. Again, a very common popular lens by which we view the world. And there's also the romance lens, which suggests that life finally begins when you finally find that special someone. And I would say this lens is pretty popular too. You know, last weekend I was at the Broadway Princess Party. Do you know the Broadway Princess Party? Uh, very... Very, very, very good concert uh, put on by like Broadway A-listers where they sing a bunch of the big Disney princess and prince songs and love songs. So it's right there. Uh, Laura Osnes in the middle, Susan Egan, who's like super famous. She was probably in or she sang a lot of the songs perhaps of your childhood from Disney movies. So these are like brilliant, brilliant people. And I was right in the second row. So I like got right up in the action. Yeah, photo from my phone. Uh, so I was right there, uh, just in the middle of it all, soaking it up. And I love, of course, I love theater. I love a good Disney movie. I love listening to the songs of Disney from A-list Broadway stars. But I'll tell you this, sitting there, I couldn't help but notice how many songs for children insist that life can finally begin once that prince or princess arrives. That life is only complete with romance. Indeed, it's a powerful story. It's a lens by which many of us see the world. In fact, there, there's just many ways that we interpret reality, many interpretive lenses we can put on our experience to say, okay, here's what's missing, here's what needs to change, here's what needs to be better, here's what would make me happier, here's what would make me a good neighbor, a good husband, a good friend, a good wife, whatever it might be. There's a million lenses we can have to ex experience and interpret the world around us. But those who follow Jesus, those who want to live as he lived and loved as he loved, uh, we've been invited to build our lives on the Bible, to make the grand story of the Bible the primary lens by which we see everything. It was Paul's primary lens, and it can be ours as well. Okay, but how? Uh, how can the Bible become the lens by which we view the world? Well, that's what I want to discuss in the time we have together that remains. And if I'm honest, I think there are many challenges uh, to allowing the story of the Bible to be the primary lens by which we view our world. Uh, some of us might have a hard time connecting the first century world of the Bible or before if we're talking the Old Testament, but the world of the Bible, I mean the world of the Bible with the world of today, that's a very difficult challenge for some of us, that bridging work, that imaginative work. 
Um, some of us might have a hard time just approaching the language of the Bible. Uh, sometimes I'll admit it's not like super clear or easy to understand and there's different translations that can help with that and all kinds of stuff, but that's a very real challenge. Um, other of us might have questions about whether the Bible really is the best lens to view reality. Maybe there's another philosophy or another framework or worldview that seems a little truer in our eyes. And so it's like, okay, well, I could spend time learning the Bible, but I actually think this is a true description of reality. And so there's some work to be done there, some conversation to be had. And I want to be very clear, uh, all those are real challenges to making the Bible the primary lens by which we view the world. Um, and if those challenges resonate with you, uh, I'd be happy to have a conversation. You can tell I'm real chill. Whatever questions you have, let's meet. Uh, Gabe would be happy to meet with you. In fact, if you want the most up-to-date information, maybe you should meet with Ben, who just did announcements, because he's the most recent out of school. So Gabe and I have forgotten everything uh, by now. I couldn't tell you some stuff I used to know for a quiz. It is gone, uh, but Ben's got it fresh, right? But anyway, all, all of us, we'd love, love, love to meet with you. If those are your challenges or their sincere questions with the Bible there, those are real valid, uh, would love to have conversation along those lines. But knowing so many of us, um, knowing our faith community, knowing our culture, knowing where we are, I actually think there's another obstacle. Uh, I'd go so far as to say this is probably the primary obstacle in our culture that keeps the Bible from becoming the main lens by which we view reality, that keeps so many for making the Bible their interpretive lens on the world. Um, I think this is the primary obstacle, here it is. Uh, illiteracy, specifically biblical illiteracy. In other words, we don't know the story of the Bible. We don't know what it says and what it doesn't say. And for example, God helps those who helps themselves, it's not in the Bible. Uh, we don't know what it says and what it doesn't say. We don't know what it values and what it doesn't value. We don't know what it loves and what it wants to change for our good. And if that is the case, how can the Bible possibly be the lens by which we view and understand the world? You know, when I was in college, I lived with this guy named Wes. Um, I love Wes. There we are at IU Crew. I know, blast from the past. Uh, Wes is like a true redneck. I don't know if any of you know any rednecks, uh, but he is from Santa Claus, Indiana, which is a small town that has like devoted themselves to Christmas year round. So there is a like a really cheesy amusement park uh, in Santa Claus called Holiday World, and Wes managed the pizza stand there uh, in high school. So love Wes. Uh, he was the valedictorian of his high school. Uh, I won't tell you how big that high school was, country school. Uh, but he is a smart cookie, and I absolutely adore him. Great roommate, uh, wonderful, wonderful guy. And like all of us, Wes has his quirks, right? We all have quirks. Well, Wes um, was one of those dudes, and maybe you have a person like this in your life. We would watch a lot of movies together, and whenever we'd watch a movie, as soon as it was done, he started like recasting the movie with his friends, you know? So for example, we watched uh, the A-Team remake. And so, you know, you watch the story, great action movie, your heart's pounding, then it ends and he's like, all right, you know, Michael, you're Mr. T, Tyler, your face, you know, I'm Hannibal. Or we'd watch Star Trek and he's like, I'm Captain Kirk, Tyler, clearly you're Spock. Um, and if you haven't picked it up, Wes was like always the hero um, and the rest of us were the supporting cast. But Wes, he would see any movie and he'd notice different parts or attributes and the different characters of the movie. And he'd think, okay, I have a friend who acts like that. I have a friend who looks like that. I have a friend who thinks like that. And so just in his imagination, he would recast the movie in terms of people or experiences in his own life. 
You see, Wes knew the story of the A-Team. He knew the story of Star Trek. He had just watched it. It was fresh in his mind. And so he was able to connect those stories with real people in his life. And the connections were always, you know, funny, and we loved them as a house. But it, it was this bridging work of saying, okay, here's this narrative. Here's some people I know. Here's how they go together. And what I think is true is that, sadly, far too many of us don't know the story of the Bible and so we find it hard to link it to our day-in, day-out lives. Okay, we're just biblically illiterate. Um, in fact, if you've got one of these Church for Monday series guides, and I think we have a few left, uh, in this week's kind of exercises, I guess you could call them, uh, there's a little quiz at the very first part, so, right? So we build our lives on the Bible. There's a little quiz here, um, Bible memory quiz something like that. And again, um, to be clear, this quiz, it's not to make anyone feel bad about their knowledge of the Bible. This isn't like a shaming quiz, but we wanted to put something like this in here to help start facilitate a self-assessment of how well do I really know the Bible? Uh, do I really know this story that's supposed to be the shaping story for those who are following Jesus? Or, or do I have some room to grow? A little fun quiz there at the beginning. Um, yeah, that I thought was fun. Um, and the reason we put it in there again is because according to LifeWay research, 55% of those who attend church regularly, or in other words, the majority of those who attend church regularly, read the Bible less than once a week. Okay, that is, they read the Bible maybe once or twice a month to be more specific on the findings, if that. Which, friends, I got to say, um, to me, that just doesn't feel like it's enough engagement with the Bible if it is to become the primary lens by which we see the world. Right? In other words, if we are going to have the kind of robust, strong, confident faith that Paul had, we won't get there by reading the Bible only once or twice a month. I think it's true. Many of us just don't know the Bible, and that's something that can change. This obstacle to having vibrant faith, it's something we can do some work on. So what are some practical steps we can take uh, to, to, to combat biblical illiteracy or to grow out of it? Well, here are just a few thoughts. Um, first, might I suggest that we make Bible reading a habit? That we make Bible reading a habit. Now, what do I mean by habit? I think habit's the key word in that phrase. Uh, there's some social scientists that have done some great work on habit formation. They know how habits start and how they grow and how they get to be cemented. And so using their knowledge, here's what I think it might look like for us to make Bible reading a habit. Um, first, I think we need to start by finding a Bible reading plan. Uh, finding a plan. There are many, many plans uh, at bible.com slash reading dash plans. I don't know why they put the dash in there, uh, but they did. So bible.com slash reading dash plans. There are so many plans. Uh, plans that focus on God's heart for justice. Plans that focus on embracing forgiveness. Plans that focus on building better relationships. So I think step one is to choose a plan and don't get stuck on choosing a perfect plan. Bible reading is going to become a habit after all, right? You'll have time to do all the plans. So don't get stuck on choosing a perfect plan, but pick a plan. And why? Because the people that have written these plans have already done the hard work of breaking the full text of the Bible down into digestible segments. 
right? They've done that work for you. I was joking with someone between services. I used to think because I had, you know, a big seminary degree that like a Bible plan was beneath me. But what happened is then I would just never read it. So I love plans. They've already done the work. Why not lean into it, right? So pick a plan. Don't get hung up on the plan. Let it be any plan, just a good plan, something that you want to read. And then once you've got that plan, now you have the opportunity to start establishing the habit or the rhythm of Bible reading. Now here's what social scientists have found. Habits work in three elements. They have these three steps, all habits. There's a cue, the habit itself, and then the reward, right? So cue, habit, reward, these are the elements of a habit. So a cue is what starts a habit. Um, it says, hey, it's time for that habit to begin. Then there's the habit itself, and then there's some reward that closes the loop, and if those three elements are there, a cue, habit, and reward, you can create a habit in your own life. So here's what this might look like as it relates to Bible reading. A cue could be, hey, I know every morning I have coffee with breakfast. You know, no matter what I'm having for breakfast, if it's one piece of toast or a full eggs and bacon, whatever it is, no, I'm going to have my coffee. So coffee is my cue. And when I get that cup of coffee, it means my Bible opens or I turn on the audio Bible. I think audio Bible counts as Bible reading, just so you know. But whatever it is, right, I've had my cue. It's time to get into the word that launches the habit. Then there's the habit itself. This is where the Bible plan gets into it. And we say, look, I'm not going to skip. I'm not going to just take one day off. I'm going to give it, you know, the, so many of these plans break it down into such a digestible portion, a 10-minute thing. I'm going to do the habit, right? So cue, habit itself. I'm going to have my time in the Word. And then this is the part so many people miss in making a habit, a reward. For something to become habitual, there has got to be a reward. Uh, when it comes to Bible reading, a great reward could be like, hey, here's one thing I learned today, and I get to write it down in a journal. That could be enough for some people, right? That was rewarding for me to realize that, oh, God always gives his disciples a second chance, and I've needed so many second chances, and you cry a bit, and then it's done, right? But then you got your reward. Uh, or you could give yourself a cookie, but whatever it is, cue, habit, reward, cue, habit, reward, this will get the habit started in your life. These are the steps to establishing a habit that's repeatable and that lasts. So why not make Bible reading a habit? I mean, why not engage this ancient, divinely inspired text that anchors faith and buoys hope on a daily basis? Now hear me very clearly. You don't have to read large chunks of the Bible for this to count. Right? I mean, uh, there's sometimes that it's just like, I don't know if you've seen these people at the gym. I've been at the gym recently. Can you tell? Uh, no, but thank you. I'm, I know, selfless. Uh, but you, you see these people at the gym, usually around the beginning of the year, and it's like, I haven't been for a full year, so I'm going to lift all the weight. You know, I'm going to get back in. And when people try to do that, they usually burn out quickly, and they never come back. So it's not about reading some big, long chunk of scripture and getting into it. And quite honestly, small chunks of the Bible regularly read over time make a big difference. Small chunks over time, but with regularity, that will make a big difference. Don't feel like you've got to, you know, blaze through the whole book of Habakkuk or something like that. But make Bible reading a habit. This is one step that can help combat biblical illiteracy. And here's the other one. Uh, it's to grow in familiarity with the Bible's big story. To grow in familiarity with the Bible's big story. Now, what do I mean there? Well, some of us are just really good, like habit people. I know this church well. You say you're going to wake up at this time, and you will. You say you're going to do this, do that. You're just really disciplined, really great at that rhythm. That's excellent. Love that. Great to have a lot of type A's. Um, but th it is possible to be so good at the habit and to have the regular Bible reading time, but have no larger framework 
to attach what you're reading to just like the grander narrative of the Bible. So it would be possible to be so disciplined in reading those small chunks of the Bible, but not have any kind of larger picture to know how the small chunk that you're reading fits with the whole. And so that's why another thing that can help us combat biblical illiteracy or get better at placing the Bible into context is to know the whole story of the Bible, to know the cohesive story that it tells beginning to end about God's great love for us and redemption for us and sending Jesus. There is one grand story to the Bible. Knowing that helps place all the smaller pieces into context. So what are ways we can grow in our understanding of the full story of the Bible? Well, one great resource is a website called thebibleproject.com. Uh, they have made like these awesome animated videos, you know, they're so popular now and things pop up and it's, yeah, you've seen them, uh, or videos like them. They've made so many of those about so many biblical themes. It's really, really, really excellent work. Love the Bible Project. It's uh, from some great authors that I think are out in Oregon, Tim Mackey and company, who have made this wonderful, wonderful resource. Those are all available on thebibleproject.com. Uh, if you go there, you will learn so much. But I'd also love to suggest uh, the Jesus Storybook Bible. Have any of you ever seen this? I love, I see a hand, I see that hand. Uh, I love the Jesus Storybook Bible. You guys, uh, this book written for children is one of the richest books that I know of that captures the full story of the Bible. The subtitle says, Every Story Whispers His Name. And it's written by Sally Lloyd-Jones, who I call Saint Sally Lloyd-Jones. Uh, she's going to get all the heavenly rewards. This is a brilliantly, brilliantly written text. And in fact, what's true is that whenever I go over to Gabe's house for dinner, which we do on a really regular basis, um, this is the bedtime story for the kiddos. And so usually Mr. Tyler is like the celebrity guest reader uh, at dinner. And I'm telling you all, I can't make it through just one of these chapters without crying myself. Uh, we were doing... Oh, what was it the last time we were at dinner? Uh, David, we were talking Psalm 23, right? The Lord is my shepherd. And I'm telling you, just the animation and the way she describes it, it's like Israel and Ava on my lap. It's like, don't turn around. You know, Mr. Tyler's wiping a tear away. It is such a good book. And the reason I love it is because Sally Lloyd-Jones has found a way to connect every story in Scripture to the big story of Scripture. That's what she means by every story whispers his name. She gets every text connected to Jesus's story. And I'm telling you, as one who has studied the Bible in detail in class, who knows a lot of particularities, a lot of Bible trivia, um, it's just something I've given my life to, right? In the same way that you know your fields of expertise well, I know the Bible well, I can forget the big picture. And knowing Hebrew is great, knowing Greek is great, knowing different words and facts and trivia is great. But when I forget the big picture, I pull out the Jesus Storybook Bible. And I remember that it's all about Jesus coming to earth and loving us so much and bringing us into our family and being a forever friend. And I lose it because it's so good. I mean, the fact is, if you want to know the Bible and truly know it, you've got to make reading it a habit. And you need some kind of resource that helps you grasp the big picture and keep a hold of that so that you can put every other smaller story into context. I mean, if you want to know the Bible and make it be the lens by which you see the world, you have got to know it and truly know it. I mean, imagine this. Imagine if someone said, hey, you know, I'm a big fan of the Chiefs. But after you prod them a little more and dig in, you realize they can't name a single player except Patrick Mahomes, you know? You're like, really? Or imagine if someone says, hey, I'm a huge fan of HGTV. But upon further investigation, you realize they cannot tell the difference between Chip and Joanna Gaines and Tarek and Christina El Musa, right? They just don't know. They don't know. And if they don't know, you would question their sincerity. 
you would say, hey, I really don't think you care that much about Kansas City's NFL team, or I really don't think you care that much about home decoration and remodeling. <laughs> and yet, and yet, there are so many who say, of course I follow Jesus, I love Jesus. But upon further prodding, they can't tell you much about his word. They just don't know the Bible. And again, no shame. I'm not saying this in mean way. I'm just saying, Christ community, we don't have to be those people. We have the opportunity to be different, to see our world differently, to see with eyes of faith, to let the Bible be our lens. And why wouldn't we want that? I mean, we laughed already, but it's so true. Stuff happens, right? Whatever it is, it hits the fan. We all know it. We nodded at the beginning. That's coming. And I'm just telling you, when that happens in your life, the materialism lens doesn't have a whole lot to offer. And when failure comes your way, and it happens to all of us, the success lens isn't going to hold you up. And I'm telling you, as good as a good relationship can be, that person will let you down, and that'll really, really hurt if your only lens is the romance lens, right? It's just true for all of it. The biblical lens, I believe, is the true lens by which we can see the world, and it is the lens that helps us have hope and buoyancy and resilience and the kind of faith that lasts beyond Sunday into Monday and into the rest of the week. Knowing the story of the Bible, it makes us strong, it makes us wise, it gives us the kind of faith that endures. Now, I was trying to think of great heroes, people that have known the Bible so well and allowed it to make a big difference in their life. And really, there are so many examples I can choose from. There's great global examples, uh, there's great modern examples, historical examples, but the one that just captured my heart afresh, and it's uh, something I studied even a lot in seminary, uh, I just kept thinking of the historic African-American church in the United States. I mean, think about this, this historic persecuted black church here that survived the Civil War and endured Jim Crow and had all kinds of awful bombings and burn. I mean, just the, the legacy there is terrible. And yet, I would say there's so much we can learn from the historic African-American church and their ability to grasp onto the promises of God, to reimagine a brighter tomorrow, and to allow that to inspire hope. Uh, to allow that to inspire good community and activism and engagement for change. I mean, in every dimension, I think there's a great historical legacy in the American black church of what it looks like to know, so thoroughly know and grasp and believe the story of the Bible and allow it to transform you in the midst of an awful circumstance. I mean, to agree, I'm not the, the only person who thinks that. Uh, Dr. Charlie Dates, who I love, the lead pastor of Progressive Baptist Church in Chicago and also a graduate of Trinity, so we went to the same school. Uh, Charlie, he says this, he says, when their churches burned to the ground by the flames of legal racism, they, meaning the historic black church, sang about a new home over in glory that is mine. And when their neighborhoods were left unsupported and their humanity disrespected, they preached that the sufferings of this present time are incomparable with the glory to come. See, Dr. Dates says, when the historic black church was marginalized and maligned, they responded with bold faith, endurance, and activism. And I would say that that means they responded like Paul. They recognized the connections between real and present suffering and the story of the Bible, and they said it is this way now, but it won't always be this way, and here's how we can endure in the meantime, and here's how change can come. So church, let's learn from that example. 
And let's learn from Paul's example. Let's learn from this buoyant and vibrant faith in Paul, whose mind was saturated by the story of Jesus and saturated by the word of God and who found himself in the midst of a difficult circumstance, but somehow was able to say in the midst of all that, hey, therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. This is the kind of declaration that only comes when the Bible is your primary lens for viewing the world. So let's build a faith like theirs and carry that faith wherever God leads us. All right? All right, but to do that first, let's start with prayer. So will you join me in prayer? Oh, Lord. And there are so many stories that we know well. Uh, that have captured our hearts, that have captured our imaginations. And man, those stories aren't all bad, but they're just not quite as good as the good story that comes through your word. The story of your love for us and your care for us and the way that you have a bright plan for us in a future, Lord, and the way that you can always overcome difficulty and suffering. And the fact that the heart of that story, God, is this principle of resurrection, that after death you bring new life. Lord, so many great things in the grand narrative that you've told, so many great things about who you are and what you're able to do. God, let that become the primary lens by which we view the world. Lord, sharpen our eyes. Uh, build our imaginations. Help us to know your story better and to allow it to transform our thinking and our understanding. We want to have resilient faith that lasts. And we know that knowledge of your word sustains that faith. So help us to grow in that. We ask you in your powerful name. Amen.